I'm going to throw a few uh, word pictures out at you. You tell me what comes to mind, okay? White Bronco driving down the California highway, followed by police. O.J. Simpson, right? Uh, I am not a crook. Richard Nixon. Uh, well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Bill Clinton, right? Uh, and, and we could go on and on with, with images and, and phrases and things that are associated with people that we looked up to either individually or as a nation, and they fell hard, and they disappointed, and they experienced some kind of moral failure, whether it's an athlete or a musician or a political figure or a famous TV preacher. We sadly have more people who have really blown it big time than we could even mention here today. And Saul was one of those kinds of people. There were high expectations. There were high hopes for King Saul. The nation of Israel, they, as Ben said, wanted a king for a long time. They finally got a king. And he didn't quite live up to their expectations. Now, when Saul was presented to Israel as their king, 1 Samuel 10.23 says that Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. Israel's kings had regulations that they had to follow. And then he wrote these down on a scroll and he deposited it before the Lord. Now, these regulations were given by God back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we looked at that a little bit last week. And, and basically it said that God would choose the king, that he would be from among the people of Israel, and he was to serve the Lord and the nation, not himself. So he wasn't supposed to go around accumulating great wealth and power and lots of horses and that sort of stuff. He was to be a servant of the law of God. In fact, Moses goes on to say when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to actually write for himself a copy of the law. And he's to keep it with him and read it every day so that he can learn to revere the Lord and follow carefully all the words of the law. He's not to think of himself as being better than the other Jews, as if he's above the law. He is to live underneath the law of God as all the Israelites are. And, and it goes on to say that if he is faithful to obey the covenant, then God will make sure that he and his sons will rule on the throne for forever. So when Saul is anointed as king, he begins his reigns. As I said, there's high hopes, there's holy expectations for him. And at first, Saul delivers. He does win some decisive victories against Israel's enemies. But it doesn't take long for the nation's bright hope for Saul to turn to dark disappointment. And we can trace the tragic fall of King Saul and learn from him how we can avoid that kind of descent into selfish pride and empty religion. We're going to look at three episodes today. So buckle in. We're going to go fast through this. The first episode is here in chapter 13, and it's Saul's foolish sacrifice. His first act of disobedience is this foolish sacrifice that he makes out of impatience and pride. And we see his pride on display in the first four verses, uh, beginning with his taking credit for this victory that really belongs to his son, Jonathan. So basically, Jonathan goes out, and he wins this decisive victory. And look at verse 4. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. So Saul takes credit for what his own son Jonathan did. And this is our first example of Saul's preoccupation with his own glory. He never gives Jonathan any credit. And most importantly, he never gives God any credit. Now, Saul, Jonathan wins another great victory in chapter 14, and in verse 23 it says, the Lord rescued Israel that day. It doesn't say Jonathan rescued Israel. It doesn't say Saul rescued Israel. It says the Lord rescued Israel. God is the one who gives the victory 
to Israel. It isn't Saul, but Saul never sees it that way. He puts more faith in his the size of his army and the strength of his weapons and his own military skill than he puts in the Lord. And for that reason, he's quick to become fearful when he faces overwhelming odds because he puts all of his hope and trust in himself. And we see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel. They had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. And so they go up and they encamp at Michmash. And when the men of Israel saw their situation, that it was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed, what they do? They hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even, they just left the land. They crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. So, you know, when it's yourself and your might that you place all your trust in, and then you find yourself up against something that's greater than your might, that's smarter than you are, then you're left with nowhere to turn. And so Israel's troops were facing these Philistines, and they were quaking with fear. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. In fact, the end of this chapter tells us that, that the, there were no blacksmiths in Israel. So if Israel wanted weapons... They had one place to go for their weapons, the Philistines. And the last verse of this chapter tells us that Jonathan and Saul were the only two men in Israel's army that day that had a sword or a spear. So they are outmanned, they are outgunned, they are outmaneuvered. The Philistines are technologically superior. And so this leaves Saul panicked with fear. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to come. The Old Testament law prescribed that before Israel went out to fight... The priest of God was supposed to come with the Ark of the Covenant and, and they were supposed to make an offering to the Lord and the priest was supposed to remind Israel that they are fighting for the Lord. It's not the other way around. But Saul doesn't want to wait for that. Samuel doesn't come at the right time. And so Saul decides, you know, I can just do it myself. I don't need Samuel anyway. And so he offers the offerings himself. Now you might say, okay, well, what's wrong with that? He's the king. Why can't he offer this himself? Well, two reasons. One is that is it goes against God's specific instructions to Saul. So it shows a complete disregard for the word of the Lord. But secondly, it shows a great disrespect for the offices of priest and prophet, of which Samuel held both. He was the priest and a prophet of God. Now you might remember, we mentioned this last week, in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, God spells out three offices for the Israelites. Prophet, priest, and king. And they were three, it's sort of like our three branches of government. They were three different powers. And, 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 and the king could not be a priest. And the king could not be a prophet. The king's job was to protect the people in the land. The priest's job was to administer the sacrifices and, and keep up the tabernacle. And the prophet's job was to hold the people of Israel accountable to the law and to the covenant. And so... By assuming all three roles upon himself, Saul does what he's neither qualified nor called to do. And he completely disregards the covenant of God. And so when Samuel shows up and calls him on it, Saul says, hey, it's not my fault. Look at verse 10. 
Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So basically Saul passes the buck. He blames everybody but himself. He blames his men for starting to scatter. He blames Samuel for being late. He blames the Philistines for having such a big army that's assembling before them. Well, you know, it goes without saying that Saul's not, Samuel's not impressed with these excuses. God's not impressed with these excuses. And Saul's pride and impatience and, and disobedience leads to great loss. It leads to a lost legacy. Look at verse 13. Samuel replied, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So basically, if Saul had just been patient and obedient and faithful to the covenant and treated God as the true king of Israel, then he and his sons would have reigned for all time. But now God is going to seek out a new leader, someone who will be a man after his own heart, someone who will keep God's commands, someone who will be like Jonathan's armor bearer. If you skip over to chapter 14, uh, and we'll talk about this story in just a minute, Jonathan is going out, he's got this audacious plan, he's going to attack the Philistines, and his armor bearer says in verse 7, Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. That's what God is looking for. When it says a man after his own heart, it means that God is looking for someone who's going to say to God, I'm with you, heart and soul. And of course, we all know that that person was David. That David, this shepherd boy, would be the new king of Israel. David, the shepherd boy, was a man for God's own heart because David knew what it meant to be a shepherd and to have a shepherd. David saw himself as the under-shepherd as king of Israel, but the Lord was his shepherd. And we know that David wouldn't be perfect, but he would be loyal to God, heart and soul. And speaking of loyal, that's the other thing that Saul lost. He lost the loyalty of his men. In verse 2, it says that he had 3,000 soldiers. But you come down here to verse 15, it says that he had 600 men. So his own army has lost faith in him, and they have, they have departed from him as well. Now, in chapter 14, the first half of that chapter gives us a, a bit of a pause here, and, and it gives us a great comparison. It compares Jonathan to Saul. And Jonathan was the opposite of his dad in every way. Saul was a coward. He was faithless and impatient. But this story shows us that, that Jonathan was courageous and faithful and waited on the Lord. Whereas Saul did his own thing and tried to manipulate God and was hesitant to follow God's commands, we see that Jonathan sought God's will, trusted in the Lord, and was eager to mount the attack. And basically what happens in the story is Saul is sitting around under a pomegranate tree waiting for some kind of sign from God to do what he already knows he's supposed to do. While that's going on, Jonathan and his armor bearer go out and, and begin this audacious attack on the Philistines who have every advantage over him. In fact, Jonathan and his armor bearer literally climb the cliffs of insanity to where the Philistines are standing up on top, looking down, waiting for them, probably throwing a rope to help them up. 
And they get up there. The Philistines have every advantage, literally the upper hand. And what happens? Because of Jonathan's faithfulness and courage, God gives them the victory. In fact, Jonathan says in verse 6, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now that's some faith. That's audacious faith. That's some amazing trust in God, and God delivers. And he routes the whole army. Now it's the Philistines who are quaking in fear. And it's all because of Jonathan's courage and faith. He understands what Saul never did. That it isn't about the number in your army or the weapons in your hands. It's about the faith in your heart. And that brings us to the second episode here, the last half of chapter 14. Saul makes a rash oath. He places his army under this unnecessary fast. He tells them they can't eat anything all day long while they're fighting. And and, and the reason for this is, again, because of Saul's selfish pride. Look at verse 24. Chapter 14, verse 24. Now, the men of Israel were in distress that day, not because of the Philistines, but because Saul had bound them under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before, and listen to this, I have avenged myself on my enemies. So no one, none of the troops tasted food. See, Saul forgets that he is God's chosen instrument of judgment on the wicked Philistines. It's not the other way around. God isn't beholding to Saul's vengeance on his enemies. So in his own mind, what Saul has done is elevated himself above God. He forgets that God is the true king and Saul is just the servant. And so Saul puts his men under this oath because of his pride, because he doesn't understand the nature of his relationship with God. kind of reminds me of the story of Jephthah in Judges. You might remember that. We, if you're reading through the Bible with us, we read that last week. And in that story, Jephthah has this superstitious belief that if he makes this oath, this outrageous kind of blind oath before God, that he'll earn God's favor, God will give him the victory. And so he says, Lord, if you give me the victory, then whoever walks through this door when I get home, that's what, that's what I'll sacrifice to you. And I may be thinking that maybe a chicken or something might walk through it. But he gets the victory, he comes home, and the first thing that walks through the door is his daughter. He made a rash oath. Saul does the same thing here. He believes that by having his men fast while they fight, somehow he's going to impress God and God's going to give him the victory. But God never asked Saul to do that. And it shows us that Saul has this obsession with empty religion. And and you look at verse 25. It says, The entire army entered the woods and there was honey on the ground. So they're out there fighting in the woods. There's honey out on the ground. The men are so hungry, but they refuse to eat it. But Jonathan who was out winning his own victory when Saul made this rash oath. And so Jonathan doesn't know anything about it. Jonathan sees the honey, sticks the staff in it, and eats from the honey. And the men see him do that and say, Whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Your dad put this oath on us, and whoever eats today is going to have to die. And Jonathan is outraged by this. And look what he says in verse 29. He says, My father's made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? And the men are so exhausted that day that as they're fighting, you know, there's these dead animals laying in the field. They basically start to slaughter the dead animals and eat them right there in the field, blood and all. And this this alarms Saul. Saul becomes concerned. Look at at verse um, 33. Someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. And Saul says to them, You have broken faith. 
And he has them set up this altar so that they can slaughter the animals and let the blood drain and eat so that they don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. And so everybody brings their ox and they do all of that. And then Saul goes to consult the Lord and the Lord doesn't answer him. And so he he concocts this, this ritual where they're casting lots, trying to find out who has sinned in the camp that God's not answering him. And the lot happens to fall to Jonathan. And he learns that Jonathan ate the honey and Saul doubles down on his oath and says, well, then my son Jonathan has to die. And it's the men of the army that rally around Jonathan and say, no, you're not going to kill Jonathan. It's because of him we're winning today. All of this is, is proof that Saul is obsessed with these empty religious rituals and his own son is the unwitting victim of his rash oath, just like Jephthah's daughter was the unwitting victim of Jephthah's oath. It shows a lack of compassion for his men, for his son, because he places this unnecessary burden on the people. Reminds me of what Jesus later says to the Pharisees in the New Testament. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, Jesus rebuked them for doing the same thing. They put unnecessary burdens on the people. And Jesus says this in Luke 11. You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And that's exactly what Saul has done. He's put burdensome restrictions on his men, all in the attempt to earn God's favor. But just as the Pharisees didn't understand the nature of God's covenant of grace, neither does Saul. And look at the results. The results were that it led to a roadblock to victory. Jonathan understood that his father cost them victory. If it wasn't for this unnecessary fast, they likely would have wiped out the Philistines that day. Instead, now they've got to fight them another day. That's what selfish pride and empty religious ritual does. It limits us from experiencing the fullness of God's blessings. It also led to a stumbling block for others. Now think about this. Here Saul puts this unnecessary restriction on his men that God never commands. And it causes them to stumble and to actually violate one of God's actual commands. And what is Saul hung up on? He's hung up more on Jonathan disobeying his command than he really is the rest of Israel disobeying God's commands. And so they pounce on the plunder, it says. They're so hungry, they just start diving into these dead animals right there in the field. Saul, through these burdens, have put a stumbling block to keep them from experiencing the victory that God wanted them to have. And that's exactly what happens to us when we put these man-made traditions, we put these overly burdensome restrictions on people, we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we think we can add to it through our preferences and we, we, we want you, you have to look this way and you have to talk this way and you have to act this way and you have to like this kind of music if you want to follow Jesus. And what we do is we push people farther and farther away from experiencing the grace of God. And we cause others to stumble. And we also see that it was a roadblock to prayer. It wasn't Jonathan's infraction that kept God from being silent and not answering Saul's question. It was Saul's own pride. It was his own self-righteousness. God isn't obliged to answer Saul's prayer. God's not obliged to answer anybody's prayer. But the Bible tells us time and again that if we are humble, and if we are faithful to God, and if we seek Him with all of our heart, that He will listen and answer to our prayers. So here in chapter 13, we saw Samuel told Saul that he lost the royal dynasty. 
And he was skating on thin ice. Chapter 14 doesn't ease our concerns about Saul. He he shows this continued prideful preoccupation with his own honor and this obsession with religious rituals and oaths. He's even ready to execute his own son. He cost Israel decisive victory because of these undue burdens. And then now we come to chapter 15. And we see how Saul's situation becomes even more precarious. He exhibits more pride and disobedience. And he brings the most severe repercussions upon himself. We see here the ultimate example of Saul's failure to obey. And we once again see the disastrous results of selfish pride and empty religion. Look with me in verses 1 through 11. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And so Saul does that. They go out and they they have this this battle and and he fights. And look at verse 7. Verse 8, it says, He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now, Saul basically is given this very simple mission from God, attack and utterly destroy the Amalekites, period. Destroy everything. Leave nothing alive. Leave nothing standing. Destroy it all. Now, the Amalekites were one of Israel's original enemies. Way back in Exodus 17, it says the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In Deuteronomy 25, 19, Moses tells Israel that when they go into the land, he says, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. These Amalekites were bad dudes. They were wicked And God was going to bring His ultimate judgment upon them. Notice in verse 2, it says, I will punish the Amalekites. Saul was God's instrument to bring final judgment. And Saul was to spare no one and no thing from this utter destruction, which God reserved for only the, the most wicked of people. Basically, this was the Lord's battle. It wasn't Saul's battle. But Saul and the men under his leadership blatantly disobey God. Rather than devoting everything to God, they keep the best for themselves and devote only the weak and despised things to God. And Saul spares the life of the king. Now, because of Saul's disobedience, it says the Lord was grieved. And Samuel was troubled. Isn't that what happens when we disobey God's clear commands? We grieve the heart of God and we bring trouble on His people. That's exactly what Saul does. And then look at verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up, went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel, which sounds like a tasty place. Uh, There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. So once again, we see Saul's selfish pride. Once again, we see how he is more concerned with his appearance, with his honor, with making a great name for himself than he is for God. So, so while, while God is grieved in his heart, he made Saul king. While Samuel is up all night troubled and praying and weeping, what is Saul doing? He's building a monument to himself. 
That just shows you what kind of man he is. But then Samuel shows up. And Saul immediately begins to shift the blame from himself. Look at verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Really? In what bizarro universe is that true? But Samuel, and Samuel says, "Mm, Really? Well, then what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the slowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spare the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. I mean, can't you just hear all of the excuses and the backpedaling and the trying to make himself look okay? In fact, in this passage, five times Saul claims that he obeyed the Lord and he utterly destroyed the Amalekites while Agag is standing there and the sound of sheep and cattle are all around them. I mean, it's almost comical. But this shows us two things that were happening in Saul's heart. One, he thought he had a better plan than God did. I mean, really, he thinks that he knows better than God what he should do. He made the decision that rather than obey God's clear command, somehow it would be better to spare these animals and somehow offer them to God at a later date and time and maybe make this king bow down and worship him. So God obviously doesn't really know what he's talking about. Maybe this was just a suggestion, but Saul thinks he's got a better way. And second, it shows us how hard Saul's heart had become. He denies his sin five times. He just doesn't see that what he did was disobedience. And that reminds me of what 1 John 1, 8 and 10 says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. And it is evident that the truth of God's Word had no place in Saul's life. And that's why all of his attempts at worship and making offerings and seeking the Lord was nothing but empty religious ritual. Let's look at the rest of this chapter. In verse 16, Samuel says, stop. Just stop. Stop the lies and the excuse. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people. The Amalekites make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today 
and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. But, Sam, but he's wrong. Samuel said, As the sword has made, as your sword has made child, women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. And until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he'd made Saul king over Israel. Now, there's a lot to unpack in these few verses, but let's just notice a few things. One is, notice that from this point forward, Saul never says the Lord my God. He only says the Lord your God. And I think that's because he never really knew Samuel's God. He never knew the Lord of Israel. Samuel asked Saul two pointed questions in verse 19, and one he asked was, Why did you pounce on the plunder? Now that's a direct reference to that verse back in chapter 14. Remember when the men were so hungry they pounced on the plunder in the field? Well, here Saul is pouncing on the plunder because of his greed. And God says that it is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that's a phrase that we've heard before in, in the wilderness wanderings, in the book of Judges, that says the people would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that was always in reference to idolatry. And isn't greed, isn't pouncing on the plunder always really just a form of idolatry? And then in verses 22 through 23 is really the heart of the message today. Saul was operating under a false view of God. He really believed that mere sacrifices and offerings were enough to please God. But Samuel tells him and us that God is far more interested in obedience. And in verse 23, he says that your rebellion is like the sin of divination. Now, that word rebellion is more than just being disobedient. It's being willfully disobedient and then being defensive about it. It's justifying your actions as if what you're doing really isn't wrong, but is the right thing to do. And that was certainly Saul's attitude. And Samuel says that this is like divination, which is an attempt to gain control of a God by predicting what, would, what the God would be pleased with. And that's, that's what Saul does as well. He attempts to justify his behavior, which is further proof of his attempts to manipulate the Lord to do what he wanted God to do, rather than simply obeying what God wanted him to do. And this word in verse 23, arrogance. He said, your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. That word arrogance is better translated coercion. Manipulation. Again, Saul is trying to manipulate God to bend to his will. And Samuel compares this to idolatry. And, and the Hebrew word used there is a specific form of idolatry, where you literally bring offerings, you bring food to the idol in hopes to convince it to do what you want it to do, to, to protect your family and grow your crops and give you abundant children. Idolatry really best describes Saul's worship. Because he treats the God of Israel like some pagan idol. Saul is consumed with bringing offerings and consulting ephods and the Ark of the Covenant as if there's some kind of magic eight ball that will tell him what he's supposed to do. This is the pagan model where humans are responsible for meeting the needs of the gods, where you're responsible for bringing the God food through offerings and providing the God shelter through temples in hopes that the God will give you what you want. But this is not what the Lord's covenant relationship with Israel is like at all. God doesn't need anyone to serve Him. 
He is the all-sufficient, sovereign creator of the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. Rather, God invites people into a covenant relationship with Him based on love and faithfulness. And we show that love and faithfulness through our trust and obedience. And so true worship and prayer are never designed to change God's mind or manipulate God's will. Rather, they're supposed to change us. They're supposed to submit our will to God's will so that we do what God wants to do, not so we get God to do what we want to do. But Saul doesn't get it. And he bases his life on this false view of God, and as a result, he experiences tragic loss. He lost his kingdom. Because Saul rejected God as a true king of Israel, God rejected Saul. And it's interesting that only at that point does Saul even admit his own sin. And it's not a sincere confession. And there's no repentance. And the very next breath, he starts blaming the people again. He starts justifying what he did. He isn't concerned with his standing before God, only his standing before people. In fact, if you look at verse 30, he says that he wants Samuel to forgive him so that he can be honored in the eyes of the elders and the people. It's all about appearances for Saul. He lost his kingdom. He lost his relationship with God. He lost his relationship with Saul. There's a lot to unpack in these three stories, but there's a lot of warnings for us to heed, and I want to leave us with two main thoughts. One, God wants people who will worship Him with true hearts that are concerned with obeying God, not with getting God to obey them. And this is the gist of what Jesus was getting at with the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus met? And she starts asking Him all these questions. She's wrapped up in these petty arguments over where they should worship, on this mountain or on that mountain. And Jesus basically says, you know, people who argue over that kind of stuff don't really know what they're talking about. And he says in John 4, 24, rather God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. And today, too many Christians and churches get hung up on these man-made traditions, on empty religious rituals, just like Saul, just like the Samaritan woman, arguing over which is the best way to worship God, with this instrument or with that instrument, in this style or in that style. We worry about should we wear these kinds of clothes or those kinds of clothes, read this translation or that translation, because we believe, I think we argue over that because we believe it, that we really want to experience God's presence and blessing, then we have to do it just so. We have to either be formal or we have to be casual. We have to be contemporary. We have to be traditional. We have to take up the offering at the end of the service. We have to take up the offering in the middle of the service. Wrong! God wants people who will worship Him with true hearts that are concerned with obeying Him, not with getting God to obey them and their preferences. Number two, sacrifice does not always indicate obedience, but obedience always involves sacrifice. Samuel's charge to Saul that God is more pleased with obedience and sacrifice is echoed time and again throughout the Bible. It's a favorite refrain of the Old Testament prophets. Amos said, or God said through Amos, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. He says, away with the noise of your songs. I wonder how often God says that about us. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
Why? Because Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. When you come to the New Testament, James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And Paul says in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. My question for us this morning, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or as someone else's Lord and Savior? Saul knew the Lord as Samuel's God, but he never knew Him as his God. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you personally put your faith and trust in Him and asked Him to forgive you of your sins and to live within you? If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Him built on trust and love and faithfulness and a desire to follow Him, then I invite you to come this morning so I can introduce you to Him. He is standing here ready to have that kind of relationship with you. You know, at any point, I think Saul could have truly repented and turned to God, and God would have accepted him. And it doesn't matter what you've done this morning, God is ready to accept you if you will turn to Him. Maybe this morning you need to ask yourself if you're willing to obey God and all He commands you. You know what God wants you to do. You know what God wants you to say. You know there are lost people in your life right now that you need to be sharing the gospel with. You know what God expects of you. Will you do it? Will you be faithful to obey God's commands? Will you take a different path than Saul? Will you step out of your pew this morning in obedience to God? Even more important than that, will you step out these doors and go into this week in obedience to God? Consider that as we stand and sing this morning. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Will you follow Him today? Will you follow Him this week?